welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting, um, we want to welcome you into the, our community today. Um, Randy called me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, AJ, um, love to throw you a curveball doing a series on Revelation, and um, would you be willing to teach on the week when we look at the first church in Ephesus? Um, my first thought, honestly, didn't say this out loud, thought dragons, seven-headed beasts, um, swords coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Shouldn't we save that for Halloween? Isn't that like a better series around then? Um, I mean, honestly, Revelation, sometimes, if we're not careful, can sound like a really bad Hitchcock film. You know, you're like, oh, like what am I supposed to do with, with seven-headed beasts? That's kind of strange. Um, but I, I like Randy's invitation to reimagine Revelation on its own terms. I don't know what you grew up perceiving about this prophetic book that was given to the Apostle John through the mouth of Jesus. Um, but I want to invite you to reimagine it as a book of comfort, one that Randy has cast a vision for us to see Revelation on its own terms. Now, you didn't hear this from me, and as Steve Brown would say, if you say I said it, I'd tell you you lie. But word has it that when Randy came up for this series title, Everything is Gonna Be All Right, he was under the influence of the great Jamaican theologian, Bob Marley, that every little thing is gonna be all right. He forgot the little part in there, and that is a way of saying that God is for you in all of the details of your life where you are. And his grace coming through that. So in Christ, there is abundant joy, and there is abundant peace, and there is abundant love, no matter where you are on your spectrum of the season of where God has you. So be encouraged. I, I want to begin today with the context of this church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a fascinating city, and, and we lose the full thrust of what, what Jesus is speaking into this church if we don't understand the city in which we're talking about and then begin to say, how does that relate to the city in which we live? So Ephesus is a fascinating little, little city, not really little, but it's a harbor town. It's a port town. It's one of the wealthiest towns aside from Rome in all of the world, specifically in all of Asia at this time. With major ports come huge ships. Commerce was busting. Some of those beautiful ships in all of the world how were housed in Ephesus. So you can imagine all the business that came in and went out. It was situated um, geographically in a place that to get to the coast from Asia, you had to come down into Ephesus to the coast. And if you were coming in to do business or to travel in Asia, you came up on the sea through Ephesus in order to get to other places in the land. So all that to say, major cultural intersection. With major cultural intersections come great diversity. In other words, this city was in constant withdrawals and deposits. All the people that would land there would deposit something, and all the people that would leave would, would withdraw something and take it to other parts of the world. This was a major cultural intersection. It was called the city of change, and that's because people were always coming in and coming out, bringing their baggage, their life, their culture into the city, and then leaving with a piece of Ephesus. So fascinating city that we're talking about here. Hartsfield Airport, our own Hartsfield Airport, interesting place. One of the, I think it's the, if not, it's one of the highest trafficked airports in the country. Domestic flights alone, last month, 3.4 million people last month got off in our airport. That doesn't mean they landed and hung out for a while. It just means maybe some connected, but a lot of them stayed. A lot of them went and did business. A lot of them live here. They landed, come wherever, landed from wherever they were coming from. All that to say, it's fascinating when we look at our own city with all of the cultural deposits and withdrawals going on that we are a city of change as well by just looking at our airport that we're basically the cultural hub of the South and maybe the hub of the entire 
country. Ephesus was the Vanity Fair of Asia. If you're aware of the sartorialist, it's probably where he would have lived aside from Rome and took his photos. Now looking at the religious side of this, Ephesus was basically a spiritual volcano waiting to erupt at any moment. The amount of things happening spiritually in the city is really, really dense. It's the home of the great Artemis. Check out, here's a, here's a picture of Artemis, the goddess of this city. It will be up now. There you go. That's Artemis, goddess of the hunt, goddess of the moon, goddess of fertility. People would come from all over the world to connect to this goddess. Now if you go to this next part, This is where Ephesus, this is where her temple would have been. So if you go there today, you will see this. Not that impressive, but if you look at Ephesus here, you'll see that this is the temple, 127 pillars, they say, that it probably would have had. This is a rendering of what they think it might have looked like. 127 pillars made of marble. Some were plated in gold. If you'll go to that picture of the stadium, I want to show you the stadium that was contained here. This is the stadium that sat 25,000 people. It would sit one-eighth of Ephesus' population at one time. That would be like taking Philip's Arena and multiplying it by 30. In other words, this was a city that valued entertainment. Go back to the temple, if you will. This is a city that valued worship. Fascinating place. One of the seven wonders of the world would be this rendered temple, if you'll go back to that, 127 pillars. Now, criminals were granted asylum in the temple. So when criminals would come, they would be granted a sign. They were free when they would come to the temple. So you can imagine the wealthy elite stumbling to worship upon this temple from distant lands and and rubbing shoulders with criminals, rubbing shoulders with other people of all different socioeconomic status. All that to say, a huge cultural intersection happening all the time. Now, the way you connected with this goddess, the way one would connect with Artemis, was to be, have relations with a temple prostitute. I mean, we're talking about a culture steeped in religious immorality. Heraclitus, the great Greek philosopher, said this, the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of beasts. For even promiscuous dogs do not mutilate each other. I mean, that was the perspective of this city that even the philosophers of this day said, this, there's so much immorality. And it's fascinating because Paul says 35 years before this revelation is given, oh, I think that's where I'm going to go plant a church. That's the context in which this revelation was given. You go to Acts chapter 19, in Paul's day, 40 years or so before this revelation was given, he lands, he plants a church, and such revival breaks out amongst all this religious immorality. Such revival breaks out that they start burning their magic books. They start repenting from worshiping pagan gods and goddesses. And the name of Jesus begins to spread in the city of Ephesus. People are being baptized and repenting and beginning to confess Jesus as Lord. So much so that you hit verse 20 in Acts chapter 19. And it reads, so the, Lord, the word of the Lord continued and it says that it prevailed mightily. So imagine this context. You have this, this, all this energy around this temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And then you have Paul that comes in with Priscilla and Aquila, and they begin to plant this church. And all of a sudden, there's this conflict. There's spiritual tension because of this. Artisans, craftsmen, and other wealthy elite made their living off this temple. They made their living off Artemis because of the things that they would create and sell to tourists. 
So you can imagine when Jesus lands in the hearts of people in the city and loyalty is given to God alone. That's going to cause huge conflict, so much so that Acts tells us they take Paul and march him into that stadium of 25,000 people. And I don't care where you went to college, this fight song would trump your college song, fight song any day of the week. And for two hours they chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. This is the climate in which God speaks into. This is the situation that had happened 30 or 40 years before John is given his revelation. I mean, Paul then goes into Tyrannus. He rents this hall. And for two years, he disciples people. I mean, we're talking journey curriculum on steroids. Every day, he was with his people, discipling them, showing them the way of Jesus. Now, politically, let's fast forward 40 years to the time that this revelation was given to John. So we're out of the time of Paul into the time of John writing before his death. Politically a fascinating place. What had happened in that time, Rome began to unravel a little bit. So all the powers that be began to say, we need to unify the empire. And here's how we do it. We take the emperor and we deify the emperor. We make the emperor divine son of God. Because if the emperor is divine, we can command worship. Therefore, we can command loyalty. And so once a year, during this time when John wrote, Domitian was the emperor, a tyrannical ruler, killed many Christians, fed them to lions, in fact. So at this time, what would happen is the magistrate would come before the city once a year, and if you were a, city of, if you were a citizen of Ephesus, you would have to appear before the magistrate, burn your incense, and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. It's out of this context that we develop in our tradition the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Because if you're John at this time and your followers of Jesus are proclaiming Jesus is Lord, politically you are saying Caesar is not. And that gets you banished to islands like Patmos, which is where John is when he writes, or excuse me, when Jesus writes this through John. So, so understanding that that's the reason that Revelation, wherever you find yourself today, whether you are in triumph or tragedy, everywhere in between. We think about this word given to this city that was in spiritual, just, I mean, just so much going on spiritually in this city. So wherever you, wherever you find yourself today, let this be a comfort for you that John is given this revelation while sitting in a cell somewhere on an island saying, be encouraged, have joy, be loved. Because though you feel like the world is caving in on you, because employment is difficult right now, and because health is going south, and fill in the blank for wherever you are, though you feel that's the case, God is for you, and his grace is pouring out on his people, even when you don't think it true. So let's stand together with that, and let's read this text Let's understand the context by which it was written, the full thrust of that. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, reads like this. Let's read together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, 
your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I, I ask that, um, that as these words are, are spoken out as... Um, as the word of your revelation comes, that it would fall on soil that is good. God, cultivate our hearts and our minds that we would receive the spirit of truth and discern from false teaching, that we would discern from false living, that we would cast down our idols, and that we would follow you with our hearts and our minds and our strength and our spirit. We ask this in the name of the Lord. Amen. So this text starts out, we're going to walk through a couple of these verses, and then we'll transition on. The text starts out with this, really interesting. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you weren't here last week, Randy went into that imagery a little bit. I highly recommend you listen, whether it's online or you get the CD or however, whatever means you can make that possible. So moving forward, I think what's so important about this passage is the fact that John is not playing church consultant here. He's not like someone who's given some good tips. Hey, I've heard of the church and what's going on back in the mainland, and I got some ideas. This is my recommendation. I submit this for your approval. This is saying, no, Jesus is speaking, and here's what Jesus is saying. Hello, the one who purchased the church by his very blood is not passive about his church. The one who purchased the church by his blood is actually, he has an opinion about the church in Ephesus. Moreover, the one who purchased the church with his blood has an opinion about the church in Johns Creek, in Atlanta, in the South, in the nations. Jesus is not some distant deity thinking, I'm going to come back and when I do, you can give a report, but saying, I actually have an opinion now of what's happening in my community because it's mine and I love it and I laid my life down for her. Jesus is not passive at all. And he goes on to say in verse 2, I know your works. This is not John speaking, this is Jesus. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In other words, you have works, you have toil, you have patient endurance, which, hello, by the way, you're under the reign of Domitian. I mean, you talk about endurance. If your claim is still Jesus is Lord when you're under the reign of Caesar, then you got some endurance going your direction. You're in. You got church discipline, he says. And here's the deal about church discipline. 
Church discipline only results from sound theology. You don't execute discipline in a church and keep the church accountable if you don't know who you are theologically, because then you, you would have no standard by which to execute discipline. So we know that this church understood theologically who they were and who they were not. And then this really ugly word is inserted that we hate to hear. It infringes upon our comfort, our satisfaction, our maintaining where we are, and it's a three-letter word, yet or but, depending on your translation. Yet, I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Interesting rebuke. It contrasts what Paul wrote to the people of this church 30 some odd years ago. Paul wrote to them and he said in Ephesians 1.15, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that you have toward the saints. I've, I've heard of that. In other words, by the time John was given this revelation 35 years ago when Paul was planning this church, the space in between, something had changed. Something had altered. Something had shifted in the community. And this is an interesting case for us because our church here as Perimeter Church, we've been around about 30 some years And this is an interesting case for us to look at. What can happen in the course of time to a church when one generation does not continue to reproduce itself in such a way that passes the baton to preserve the things God has in mind? That the elders today, it is so vitally important that elders show us what it means to fall in love with Jesus. What does it look like for someone to fully give themselves to the, to the kingdom of God? Because that's the legacy we're talking about leaving. The second generation had stepped in in Ephesus after the first generation planted. And it said that they retained doctrine, that they had service, they had endurance, yet, yet there's something else that Jesus has in mind that we're missing to be operating in fullness There's something God has an opinion about it. And I I think most churches would say, sound doctrine, amazing, uh, endurance, great. Let's just leave it here. We're doing really well. And what happens is we settle for this. We manage it. And God is saying, but you could have so much more. Don't just take what you have here and manage it. There's more for you. And so it led me this week to say, so what's the problem? Okay, great. They have sound doctrine, endurance, theology. They're, They're going the right way. They're missional. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that living missionally and pursuing sound doctrine is the fruit of the heart of covenant. It's the fruit of the heart of relational union with God. The one who made himself known. By by the way, our last season of Christmas before the season we're now of Epiphany, it is the cosmic statement from God, the incarnation saying, I'm with you. And even after I ascended, I'm with you. My spirit is with you. I intercede for you at the right hand of the Father. You are not alone. You are not orphaned. I'm with you. The problem is that pursuing these things of doctrine and mission are not quite the essence. They're the fruit of being with and in God. You know what happens when we create a community primarily bent toward missional living? That that's the essence? What happens is you create a people that become social activists. 
that began operating out of their own power, own wisdom, and own authority. And it is the danger that my generation is in right now, coming up, is that we are so socially activist that we are possibly moving too quickly to be in the Spirit. Because we want so badly to be about a cause. And part of that is because we want to feel better about ourselves. You know what happens when you create a community that is primarily bent only on sound doctrine, that that's what we're about primarily as the essence? You create legalists. Jesus called them Pharisees who knew their Torah. They knew their Old Testament. They knew the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus said, but there's more. You're missing something. When our focus becomes about how we do missionally and how we're doing doctrinally, and it ceases to become about falling more deeply into this covenant than we're in with God, we will always have ceilings spiritually. We will never fully flourish the way God intended us to do. And over time, many of you have called yourself Christian for years. And that's beautiful. The temptation for us over time is this. Here's what we do. We find a manageable level of spirituality and we call that flourishing. That's what we do. It's easier that way, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about being in relationship with God and And the problem with relationship is that you lose control. That's the problem with relationship here horizontally, but especially vertically to a a triune God. The problem with that is that I have to say now, okay, I release that. I can't control this anymore. And so I suspend my control long enough to allow you to lead me. And that's, that's hard for me because I lose my control, I lose the predictability. And so we settle for mediocrity, and, and we manage it, and we call it flourishing. And the reality of a covenantal center for you and for me pursuing Jesus is that relationship is at its core. But we don't want to do that, do we? That's risky. We're afraid where that might take us, We're afraid what that might mean for us. We're afraid what that might mean for the way in which we lead and love our families. We're afraid of what that might call us into. And, and, And the reality of that, when I fell in love with my wife, I did not care what we had, where we went, or where we were going. As long as she's there, I'm there, I'm committed with you, and that is enough for me. You know what that was like when you first got married. We're here together, and we don't have a thing, but that's enough, because we got this thing called love, and we'll figure this thing out. Why would that be any different with God? You know, what's interesting about being in relationship with God is um, when he calls the disciples for the first time and asks them to drop their nets, he he didn't give them an operating manual. Hey, here's a uh, curriculum. Read this and get back to me. I'll be over here on this rock, so take your time. Here was his instruction. Follow me. To follow someone implies a relationship, that you're there with each other. That's the process of discipleship. That there's a withness together. And what does he say to them the next day, probably? Follow me. 
And the next day, follow me. So much so, you get to the end before he ascends in the end of John. Here's what he says to Peter. Hey, you went where you wanted to go all your life, and I'm telling you, you're moving when you're in relationship with me, you're gonna go somewhere that your will, your own desires don't wanna go. And I'm telling you, freedom is found if you let go and just follow me. That that command for you and for me never relents. That every day the call on your life is follow me implying that God is calling us to so much more than a system of predictability, a system of management, but calling us back to love, calling us back to being vulnerable and surrendered, willing to do anything, anywhere, as long as you're showing up, God, yeah, that's where I'm gonna be. Simon Kistemacher, one of my um, professors, um, my first master's at Reformed Theological, he, uh, he says this in a commentary he wrote on Revelation. He says, these people, they lack the enthusiasm their parents and their grandparents had demonstrated. They functioned not as propagators of the faith, but as caretakers, as custodians. And, and hear me right, there is nothing wrong with caretaking and custodian in the church. That's one of the things I love most about our church. Our church has elders that actually do their eldering there's discipline that happens. There's, there's correction. There's accountability. Our church is so healthy in that way. And I love that. That's so brilliant. But imagine what this church is going to look like in 10 years, in 30 years, when your kids are elders. Are we handing them a model of what it means to love God? Because what happens in Ephesus is their kids stop abiding and they take over the ceremonies. And God says, I love some of the things you're up to, but let me tell you, the heart, where is it? Where, where, is, the, where is the desire to follow me? I mean, this is the church that dethroned the goddess Artemis 30 years ago. Down. It made that temple look like an abandoned field today. This is the church in Ephesus that defied the emperor, the phrase Caesar is Lord, because it said Jesus alone is our loyalty. Jesus alone is our affection and our desire and our hope. It is not in the politics of this world, but in the life of Jesus is where I proclaim my loyalty and allegiance. This is the church that was planted by Paul, Priscilla, planted by incredible people, loved by Timothy, raised by John. And today this church does not exist. It's gone. I mean, you look about the things God has been up to in this community. For those of you who haven't gone to Taste the Perimeter and you're investigating this church, I mean, you talk about hearing the story of what God has done here. It's a God story. How tragic would it be if we were to stop abiding And this edifice just became an empty old temple because we did not pass on what it looked like to embody a covenant with God as a people. And our kids simply took over the ceremonies, which is happening in the majority of cities in America of old churches. And it's tragic. The rest of this text is uh, is really clear. Um, on, on the amazing things that come about 
when we persevere to the end. The amazing fullness that we will someday experience in the presence of God as he renews the earth and brings the kingdom of heaven to earth and fully does that amazing work. And so I'm going to leave that for you to read this week. My assumption is that you love to be in the scripture. My assumption is that you don't come just on Sundays to get a little filling and then whatever, move back into your life, but that tomorrow morning you long to be with the scripture. That's my hope. And since that is true, since we believe the spirit of God is in you, our hope is that you would come to the scriptures. And and I encourage you to read the rest of Ephesians 2, 1 through 7 this week and to see what occurs for you, see what God stirs in you. So I'll let you attend to that throughout the course of this next week. But let me say this. Today is not a call back to spiritual jitters and butterflies. Don't mishear me on that. I'm not calling you to go back to a time when, oh, remember the songs we sang? And remember that guy that said this and that, that woman that prayed this? Oh, remember that time when this happened and we felt this? This isn't, I'm not saying that's what we're doing. I'm not saying let's remember the good old days and try to recreate them. Because God, God is always calling us forward. He's always drawing us into that's the, that's the brilliance of our God is there's a divine presence always leading us forth, never saying, oh, we remember the good old days, but to say the good old days are yet to come. There's more for us. That there is one thing God asks of us today. That's it. For you, you came in burdened. Gotta do all these things. God, what, what else do you want me to do? One thing he says, return to your first love. And so my question this week was, how do I do that? What's that about? What are we talking about? Return to our first love. Do I just try to conjure up more love and more emotion and just try to make it try harder? Am I supposed to try more? And I, I just felt the Spirit whisper as I, as I labored in prayer over this this week of saying, AJ, the way that you return to that is to be loved. To return to love is to be loved. Which, by the way, you didn't find God. He found you. God wasn't lost. He wasn't looking for directions. And you came along and had some insight. God finds us. He says, return to your first love. Don't conjure it up and try to find it. Let it find you. Be loved. That's our object today. That's the hope. And again, the problem with that is in being loved, you gotta surrender your control. You gotta surrender your management of your life with God. Your maintenance of trying to maintain a mediocre level because you're afraid to expect more because maybe you're afraid God won't be there. Or maybe you're afraid he will. And that could really shake some things up in you. And then you'll have to deal with this and look at this face to face and look at that square in the eye and that's hard to do. Over 60 times in the New Testament, God says your name. And here's your name. Beloved. Over and over and over in the scripture, your name is beloved. It's a verb. 
Your name is let that happen to you. Quit trying to make that happen and release and let God love you like you did for those of us who are married. Release that to God. As Chuck comes out, I'm going to ask Chuck to come under us. And as we move into a, a few minutes of just prayer, a few minutes of, of, of asking and just releasing and saying, God, we love you. Will you love us? Let us be loved. Let us be the objects of your pleasure, the objects of your glory, the objects of the things that you desire for us. Let's move from being the subjects of life to being the objects of God, releasing our control. I wanna speak some of these verses over us. For those of you who are just kind of tourists here, have never been here before, or maybe even exploring what the way of Jesus is about, I just invite you to, to just, just observe. You don't have to do anything. For those of us who are in Christ, um, I invite you to, be still and pray if you'd like. Hold your hands out, put them down, palms up, palms down. Whatever posturing allows you to surrender and to receive the love of God, whether that's standing or getting on your face in the aisle, whatever God leads you to do, just to be free in that. Or maybe it's just to look at the screens and to process these scriptures that are gonna be over you, or rather to let them process you. Maybe we go from a place today of reading scripture to being read by scripture and allowing the scriptures to read you. So let's move into that in the next couple minutes. Let's just breathe in and out and find a comfortable space and say, God, like, we're here. Because, God, you're here. We don't invite you today, God. You invite us. You were here before the lights were turned on. You were here before we experienced the warmth of a January day. Your sun rose today, Lord, and we had nothing to do with that. Your grace pours out and showers on us. Still all the noise competing for your loyalty and allegiance. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We are not what we do. We are not what our titles are. We are not what we accomplish and what we produce. We are God's children, and our name is beloved. That's who we are. 
But we always give thanks to God for you, brothers. Beloved by the Lord. I love this. Penned through the man by the Spirit who was martyred. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. God loves you even in your trial today. Your trial is evidence of God's love. To those who are called beloved, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And my favorite, First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. I don't know what the past was for you, but now we're God's children, and our goal is to be loved. That's it. That's it. That's where all the fruit pours from, the doctrine, the theology, the mission. It pours from the love of God coming into us. That we are in covenant relationship, and Jesus on the cross paid for so much more than for you to abide by a system. But do you understand that he ascended to the Father because he promised he would send a spirit to be in us, to dwell in us, to commune with us, and to draw us to himself? As we leave um, today, I just, I, I, felt, I felt it prudent to, to just say this as, as, a, as a pastor representing our staff, and maybe that's too bold, I don't know. Um, we believe that God is up to the kingdom in you. We don't think that's our job to be up to the kingdom on behalf of you. We think our job is to release you and to be released with you, to see the kingdom of heaven come to earth in whatever way God puts on our hearts and our minds. That we believe in you. We believe God is already at work in you and we're honored to join you. And in saying that, I know some of you say, well, AJ, uh, that's great and all, thanks for the speech, but I'm, I'm 80. So is Moses. Beautiful, wonderful, I, I'm 90. So is Sarah. What about the rest of us? For those of you who would have hear, ears to hear today, your best days in the Spirit are not behind you. They're before you. If you will walk into that. Father, we love being your children. We love being beloved. Forgive us for settling for systems, for management. Forgive us from the covenantal reality you have established with us. And Lord, lead us into greater relational connection. Lead us into greater awareness of your presence and your power and your love. May we experience it and in turn be missional and in turn be sound, in turn 
be all of the things you desire for this church to be. And may this church in 30 years stand and thrive and claim Jesus is Lord of all creation. We ask this in the only name that gets things done, in the name of Jesus, amen.